Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, presented by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Jack Martin. On this episode, I talk to Christina Tilley, an associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. We discuss her past as a reporter, how journalism intertwines with practicing law, and modern media issues. Hi, my name is Christina Tilley. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the College of Law here at the University of Iowa. And um, I teach some first year classes. I teach the torts class, which really is personal injury. And a subset of that is defamation law. Um, And I also teach um, media law specifically. Uh, And I also teach a class called conflicts, which is, it really is relevant to media law, but it's a little bit more obscure, so. How did you get interested in media law? How did that come about? Well, you know, I think growing up, I was always sort of equally interested in the law and in journalism. Um, And I have been lucky over the course of my career in that I've been able to do both. Um, I did journalism coming out of undergraduate and um, then I shifted after about eight or nine years and I went back to school and went to law school and then I practiced law for about five years. Um, and then I was able to put, put them together uh, and write about and study and teach media law. So I feel really lucky in that um, I was able to sort of braid those two interests together instead of having to choose between them. So coming from like a bit of a unique position of being able to practice both journalism and law, how did your, like in what ways do you observe similarities between both practices? Uh, Well, I think there are sort of systemic similarities and then there are sort of skills level similarities. So systemically, and maybe this is the reason that I have always been interested in both, is I think they both are, um, you know, crucial parts of the infrastructure of community life. Um, you must have some system of law. Um, hopefully, it's the rule of law, and it you know reflects democratic values. But even in countries that don't have a strong tradition of rule of law or democratic values, there is some overarching system that governs how people know what's expected of them and what's going to happen if they violate those expectations. So law is, I think, a, you know, a crucial contributor to how people live their daily lives. And journalism, I think, also informs that architecture. Um, It allows people to uh, understand what the lives of other people in the community are like. It allows them to inform themselves about how people should be behaving towards each other. It allows them to understand, you know, what legal actors, the government, legislators, judges uh, are doing. And, you know, if, if the legal system you're in is a democracy, it allows them to take that information into account when they're, you know, um, thinking about how to use their vote. So I think they both systemically are, you know, indispensable Um, to the architecture of how people live their lives. On a more pedestrian skills level, I think there are a lot of similarities there too. You know, in both journalism and in law, you are um, getting to know the plights of individuals. Um, Hopefully, you know, you're, you're interviewing people and to learn about, 
where they are, what's happening to them, um, what the arc of their future could look like. Um, and then you are communicating that to people who are interested or should be interested. You're trying to get them interested. And that's really so similar to what you're doing as a lawyer, especially as a litigator, which is what I was. Uh, you know, you're interviewing clients, you're learning about the plight of their life. Um, you're trying to figure out what it is they want to change. You know, do they want a court order telling, you know, the government to stop doing something? Do they want um, somebody who's hurt them to have to pay for that damage? And then you're trying to communicate that to someone who has the power to change it, um, a judge, a legislature, an agency. Um, so skills wise, I think the practices are really similar. So you are a reporter for the United Press International. So how has that given you a you like a different or unique perspective when it comes to media law and speech issues, um, especially after you decided to go and pursue your JD and getting to go through not only a journalism education, but actually putting it into practice before returning for a law education. So did you kind of have a bit of a heads up when you were going and trying to push media law and looking at First Amendment issues and already having worked in that and potentially already dealing with those problems? Yeah. Um, so I think the influence of being a journalist has had on my media law work is a little bit counterintuitive. It's not an uncommon path. You see a lot of people who were reporters go into the law and either represent the media or write in the media law space. So there are a lot of people, I think, who have the same profile that I do, but most of them tend to be pretty unabashed, you know, pro-press in a pretty absolutist way. And I'm a little bit less absolute. Um, and I think it comes from having been a journalist. And what do I mean by that? Um, so starting in the 1960s, the Supreme Court has changed the law that governs um, the protections that are given to journalists from private lawsuits like defamation and so forth. New York Times versus Sullivan and a whole line of cases. I don't know how familiar you might be with those. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of people consider that line of cases, you know, well, one famous law professor said it was cause for dancing in the streets. Um, so people, a lot of people really embrace that line of cases. And I'm a little bit more skeptical of that line of cases because I feel that, you know, before New York Times versus Sullivan, newspapers were held strictly liable if they got something wrong. And I almost feel like that operated as a warranty to readers, that readers could then, everything they read, they had a reason to take for granted that it was true. Now, it wasn't right. always true, but they had faith that what they were reading, that the incentives were there for the newspaper to get it right, for the journalist to get it right. And once you de-link accuracy and legal liability, once you say it's okay to make mistakes, newspaper, and you're not gonna necessarily be held liable for it. I think that shifts how readers approach or viewers approach what they're looking at. And so, you know, when you've got all these accusations out there, well, it's fake news and, you know, the press doesn't tell the truth. I think the legal architecture that we have today 
it is one of the reasons that people find that persuasive because you know the law doesn't necessarily today still require journalists to get things right. Um, it excuses inaccuracies in a way that it didn't 50 years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit uh, out of step with a lot of people who practice in the media law space in that I'm not so sure that court decision was quite as positive a development for the news media or for news consumers as a lot of people think it was. And to double back to you know what you were actually asking, how does my time as a journalist inform this? I've thought a lot about this, you know, why do I, why does it matter to me that, why do I feel so strongly about the fact that the law today, I think sets up not the greatest incentives. And I think it's because as a former journalist, I have this sort of, um, you know, idealized and romantic commitment to the capacity of the media as a force for good. I think in a democracy, good journalism is just so crucial to everything that goes on that when I see the law setting up an ecosystem that kind of incentivizes inaccurate journalism, um, it disappoints me because I think, you know, the press can be so good and I'm not sure that it always quite lives up to its capacity to be that force for good and um, contribute to a democratic environment quite at the level that it could. So when I say that I don't love the cases that protect the media, it's because I love the media so much. It's not because I, you know, have problems with it. Um, so, and I think it's my time at UPI that kind of, um, you know, leads me to have faith in the media and, and wants me to kind of hold it to a slightly higher standard than the law holds it to today. Is that stuff that you're starting to see, I guess, more of those laws and those protections and kind of the ability and safety net that's been placed around media outlets where they can make mistakes and there doesn't appear to be a lot of ramifications, especially, you know, with the rise of Twitter as a main news source for a lot of people. And obviously everything we saw with fake news and attacks on the media the last, you know, five and a half years or so, is that something that you've definitely seen more escalated over the last half decade or so? I mean, so here are some things that I've seen escalated. As you know, if you, and I hate to be like a law geek about this, but I am who I am, right? <laughs> um, in the New York Times line of cases, first, the court immunized the press a bit to cover public officials, and that made a lot of sense. But then it extended that immunity to cover private uh, public figures as well. And what you've seen in the past 60 years, if there have been studies that look at the um, allocation of the news hole, and over this period of time, the there's been less coverage of foreign affairs. There's been less coverage of state capitals. There's been less coverage of agencies. And what has come in to fill that gap, it's been sports news and celebrity news. So you see less hard news, more soft news. And I think in part because there's this, you know, um, latitude to inaccurately cover uh, public figures. Um, so I think you see that today. Um, but in the past half decade, what I have actually seen is um, 
a new recognition that suing for defamation is actually a way for people to test the truth of claims that are made in the public. Um, so if you see the, the lawsuits that have been brought by like Dominion Voting Systems and, and some other uh, plaintiffs against Fox News, the whole theory of those lawsuits is that Fox News was saying things that were untrue and the way to kind of prove the untruth of what was being said is to go into court, sue for defamation, and actually introduce lots of evidence, you know, more evidence that could fit in a, um, a one-minute Fox News piece or a 12-inch newspaper article, and really test the validity of those claims and try to sort of reintroduce the idea that truth isn't relative and, um, you know, truth isn't isn't in the eye of the beholder, but rather it's provable. Um, you know, to what extent New York Times versus Sullivan is going to operate to impede that effort? We'll see. I think it'll be really interesting to see. Um, but I do think there is this kind of resurgence of interest in defamation as um, a positive kind of lawsuit. Uh, I think for a long time, it was critiqued in the media and elsewhere as, you know, kind of an undiluted negative. And I think there's a new openness to the possibility that it might actually be, a, you know, um, serve a, a good function. So I'll be interested to see how that develops. What is What are some, I guess, current issues or topics of research that you've been looking into now? Um, well, I did a piece about a year ago that uh, I thought was pretty interesting. And it's, it's, it's a part of a line of research that I do, but um, looking at how the press covers the law. I don't just think about how the law influences the press, but I like to think about the inverse of that. Um, because I think, you know, as I kind of started out saying, if the law is this crucial infrastructure in daily life, people should understand it. And if they're ever gonna understand it, it's gonna be because the press explains it to them. So I think it's worth asking how good a job does the press do explaining the law to people. So I did a study with a co-author about a year ago looking at how the um, press has covered the United States Supreme Court. And we did um, what's called a corpus linguistics study. So you, we pulled all the news coverage of two different cases, one from the 50s, one from 2007. And um, we analyzed the words that the press used to cover what the court did. And what we found was that in the 50s, um, the way the press explained the court's work was by explaining the constitution. You know, they would talk about the 14th amendment, they would talk about the equal protection clause, they would talk, they would explain what the constitution says. In the modern period, you see much less of that. And what you see much more is reporters covering the court as a political institution, talking about which justices are conservative, which justices are liberal, which president appointed them, you know, what partisan um, advocacy groups approve of what the court has done and not. And at the expense of explaining, well, this was the you know, provision of the constitution that was being interpreted, or you know, these are the facts of the case. So um, I think it's really interesting to consider, you know, if we want the press to be an honest broker, what does that look like? Um, should they be kind of trying to educate the public about what our shared governance document, the constitution 
says, or should they be framing the court as though it really is a partisan institution? Um, I'm not sure I know exactly what the answer to that is because the fact is the court has become politicized in the past decade or two and to ignore that isn't totally responsible. Um, but at the same time to treat what the court is doing as though it has nothing to do with the constitution I think does a disservice to Americans. Like we should know what the constitution says and we should understand that it's difficult. You know, the constitution is a, it strikes some compromises. It's not always easy. There's some kind of tension baked into it. And we should understand that I've been looking at recently. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's definitely true with courts. I've been something that I mean, I've observed just because you know, by the time I was seeing news about that, it was, it has already become politicized just because, you know, five, six years ago, I wasn't reading articles about courts, but it just, it seems like every time there's a new Supreme Court nomination or there's a high profile court case that it just all gets down into the politics of it. And like, it doesn't, I don't feel like I walk away from a lot of those, that reporting, feeling like I learned anything about the cases at the center of it or the laws that are issues. I just know, like you said, like who is a Democrat and who's a Republican. Yeah. And I mean, that's worth knowing. I yeah. Mean, it, it, there's, it's not that it's not valuable to know that and to understand it, but, but I just think it ideally, if you're reporting on the court, you can do that. And you can also talk about, the actual law involved. Now to what, you know, I think the Supreme Court itself is partially responsible for this because, you know, if, if you work for CNN, right, you have to get on the air right away. Um, and the court just gives the reporters the opinions when it announces them. So if an opinion is 40 pages long, you know, to read it, to digest it, to write something about the Thirty minutes, you probably can't do it. So, courts in other countries often give the uh, the reporters' opinions the day ahead of time, or they'll hold a little presser the day ahead, um, off the record, but you know to explain it, so that then when the opinion is announced, the reporters can um, explain the law in an intelligent way because the court allows them to do that and helps them do it. The Supreme Court in the United States hasn't done that. So, you know, to the extent that reporters are just portraying the court as nothing but political, a little bit of the responsibility for that goes to the court. Just because they're not holding those little pressers. So it's, yeah, so it's just kind of more having to throw everything together very high. And I feel like that's the goes for even beyond courts and news. I feel like so many things are just, I had a conversation with, I'm forgetting what podcast that it was on, but just talking about how there's such a race to be first to get news information and, and the first to, you know, get information spread. And I feel like it just, that also leads to so much misinformation and confusion. And like the thing I always go back to is, um, when Kobe Bryant died and there were so many conflicting reports of who was in the helicopter, what happened. And there was just such confusion. And I feel like that's something that has just been 
even just like the last couple of years increasing more where it's just this race and there's, you know, it's so hard to know what's accurate without giving it honestly like a couple of days to really become a part of the discourse and have more information come out, more people involved to actually speak out. It's just, it's so hard to feel like you're getting everything that you need to know about a topic or an event right away. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I think I would attribute a lot of that to just the, the, the tech and the business environment in the news space, which has changed so profoundly over the past 15 or 20 years in a couple of ways. Um, well, first, in the past 40 or 50 years, news organizations that used to be owned by families and privately held you know, that could make as much or as little money as they wanted, depending on what the you know head of the family wanted, have become publicly traded companies. So they're owned by shareholders and they've got a duty to shareholders to maximize their value. Okay, once you've got that in place and then you've got technology that allows people to um, not have a six month subscription, but click on a story at a time, now the way you maximize profit is by maximizing clicks and if you wait two days to get the facts right, all of your competitors right. have gotten those clicks. Um, and I think that's interesting. It brings me back to media law and the First Amendment. You know, the, the press is given freedom because information is thought to have a social value and the press was thought to be, you know, performing somewhat of a social function, right? Um, but at the same time, it's a private business. And I mean, it's the only private business that's protected in the Constitution. But I, I'm not sure the law has really come to grips with the fact that the press is both a social institution and a profit-oriented business. Right. You know, I, I, I think the more that they can kind of acknowledge the reality of the profit motive, that might if they want to design law to improve information, I don't think they can ignore that fact. And I think to some extent that doesn't really come into a lot of the Supreme Court decision-making on press freedoms. Um, and again, I don't say any of this because I, I say it because I love the press and I right. would like to see the incentives be a little bit different because I think nine out of 10 journalists would rather take the extra time and get it right and you know go a little deeper um, but the way that the current business and legal environment is set up, if they do that, they, you know, they disadvantage themselves. Yeah. And well, even now too, if with every, I think, you know, with reporters, not obviously not every reporter is a celebrity and has a high profile, but now, you know, that there are those platforms. And when somebody who has that bigger platform and that further reach makes a mistake, they're much more susceptible to lose their career, it feels like, because there's going to be those constant attacks. And even if something happens and two months go by and you post this story on Twitter, the replies are just going to be filled with, like, remember the time you made this mistake. So I feel like now it's just a lot of um, walking on a thin rope, just trying to not make the mistake just because that could be the difference between your career and not having a career. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really true. Um, and I think some of it goes back again to the business model because, you know, why are all these reporters on Twitter? Some of them really want to be there, but I think culturally 
the news organizations, they're walking a fine line too, because they don't want to forfeit their legitimacy, but they also, they want to broaden their footprint. And the way they do that is by having their reporters on Twitter, you know, right. that's how they're getting the clicks. Um, so yeah, I, it, it would, for reporters, I think in some ways, you know, they feel compelled to be on Twitter with a hot take. Um, and, it, and I, yeah, does that make us more informed? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, it gives us more to read. <laughs> that's that, that I'm sure about, <laughs> but is it, is it helping us understand the world we live in that I, that I don't know. So to close out, what kind of advice would you have for students who are interested in journalism and law? Because just going through the journalism school, I've met people who are getting the journalism degree, but they have plans to go to law school. Even I had have had thoughts of maybe I'll do the same thing. So what kind of advice would you have for people who are either maybe on the fence and thinking about it or for those whose you know, firm plan is to get that journalism undergrad and go off into law school? Well, I mean, I guess my path, I like my path. It worked for me. So I would suggest that it might work for others. And that is, you know, if you've got the degree in journalism and you were interested in journalism, you know, maybe try it for a year or two. Why? Um, first of all, journalism is, to my mind, better suited to youth. So if you're ever going to do it, do it now. It requires physical energy. It requires mental energy. It requires you to, you know, thrust yourself into circumstances that might not feel so dignified. Um, and it doesn't pay well. And all of that goes over better when you're, you know, 22 than when you're 42. Right. Um, but I also think you learn a lot. You learn how to ask questions. You learn how to synthesize information quickly because you're on a deadline. You learn how to listen which is a hugely valuable skill everywhere, but for sure in law. Um, so, so I think practice, you know, practicing journalism for a couple of years before you try law school is a great thing. And then I think you carry a lot of those skills into law school. The reality of law school, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's real, is that you know, unlike undergraduate, in most classes, your grade is the function of one final exam a three hour final exam. Um, and the undeniable reality is that if you are you're gonna do better on that final. So I know I did better in law school because of my journalism background. I'm not sure I understood the material better than other people, but I wrote fast. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason that, you know, I, I did well. Um, and then in practice, you know, being able to listen to people, being able to figure out what do I know, what do I not know, what do I need to know, and to kind of get there quickly, I think that just sets you up to serve the client better. And all of that is comes from journalism. So um, I guess that's that's my thought. You know, if you were interested enough to get a degree in it, maybe try it for a year or two, um, learn something get your sea legs under you, and then you're gonna bring a lot of value to the law classroom. Well, awesome. Thank you for taking the time to come on and join the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It was really interesting. Interesting yeah. to hear what you guys are thinking about these days.
Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, you can find us at uiowa.edu backslash sjmc. And for more episodes of the podcast, subscribe to the Iowa Journalist on Apple Podcasts.